Please open your Bibles to Luke 19, verses 28 to 44. The passage may be found in your pew Bibles on page 878. I will be reading from the English Standard Version, which is a translation that Pastor Wes Holland will be preaching from. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, and the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away went to, those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord had need, has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation." May God bless to our understanding this reading from his holy word. Some cereal was spilled on the floor during the uh, children's sermon, but not to worry, it was all scooped up and eaten. <laughs> <laughs> we believe the scriptures are the inerrant, inspired, and authoritative word of the true and living God. And so we are working our way through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, We've been in Luke quite a while. And as I have said before, I think in such difficult times it is good to hear and examine the life and teaching of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord. Lord Jesus, as we uh, see your glorious uh, coronation, uh, your triumphal entry uh, this morning, we pray that you would be exalted and, um, and set apart as king in our hearts, Lord, that we would follow you, love you, and obey you in everything, we ask in your name. Amen. Not many of us have seen a coronation in our lifetime. Uh, The most prominent 
royal family, of course, is the English royal family and the last person in the English monarchy to be crowned was Queen Elizabeth way back in 1953. I saw Elizabeth's coronation on the Netflix series The Crown. I enjoyed it, but I was unwilling to watch it again in preparation for this sermon introduction. Uh, One time through The Crown was enough for me. Uh, But I bring this up, this issue of coronation, to illustrate that a coronation is a very public affair, usually accompanied by great fanfare and celebrations among the populace. A coronation is important because it lets the population know that the rightful monarch is being crowned. It also stops any uh, would-be contender from trying to uh, usurp the throne and the triumphal entry of our Lord Jesus was essentially a coronation. He was announcing that he was the king of Israel, that he was the Messiah, that he was the Savior. In fact, I'm going to make the case that Jesus very deliberately choreographed the events that accompanied him as he made his way toward Jerusalem. Uh, And the reason why he very deliberately choreographed these events was to uh, unequivocally identify himself as the Messiah, as the King of Israel. So, in our passage, Jesus had left Jericho, and he headed from Jericho to the town of Bethany. And Bethany was about 1.7 miles from Jerusalem, to be exact. And when he arrived in Bethany, if you know the Gospel of John... He found Lazarus to be dead. Remember that? And Lazarus' resurrection was witnessed by many in Bethany so that the word of his resurrection uh, spread uh, quickly all around Jerusalem, also to the leaders in Jerusalem. So we read... In uh, John chapter 11, verses 45 through 48, after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, it said, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, raising Lazarus from the dead, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. This passage goes on to outline their plans to kill Jesus. And then as we move into John chapter 12, the crowds in Jerusalem had heard about Lazarus, so they were streaming out of Jerusalem, making the uh, 1.7 mile trip to Bethany to see Jesus and Lazarus. So we read in John 12, verses 9 through 11, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And I give this 
uh, background to illustrate how electric the mood was in and around Jerusalem. The, the, the air was supercharged. Uh, the Passover week was just beginning. The crowds of Jews from all over the Roman Empire were crowding into Jerusalem for the festivals. The multitudes, however, were also streaming out of Jerusalem when they heard about Jesus, heard about Lazarus being raised from the dead. And it was like a line, line of ants streaming from Jerusalem to Bethany and back because they wanted to see Jesus. They wanted to hear more about this miracle that had been done. And of course, as they traveled, I'm sure they were speculating, is Jesus the promised Messiah? The religious leaders, knowing that this was the speculation, were plotting against Jesus because of his popularity Jerusalem, in short, was a beehive of excitement. So, what does our Savior do? What Jesus does is he takes a stick and he pokes that beehive. The, the spontaneous eruption of enthusiasm that broke out among the crowds as Jesus rode the donkey toward Jerusalem was really not spontaneous. As we'll see in verses, 30, in verses 29 through 35, Jesus planned this. Jesus set in motion a very calculated, very premeditated plan to deliberately draw attention to himself as the king, as the Messiah, as the Savior of Israel. And he chose that moment when Jerusalem was bursting with people, There was already this messianic expectation. Remember uh, a couple of weeks ago as we saw Jesus in Jericho, he had to tamp down those expectations? Well, here he's removing the lid on those expectations. Uh, do you recall that in John's Gospel, Jesus deliberately waited two days after he found out that uh, Lazarus had become ill before he left uh, to go see Lazarus. And it took him a bit to travel uh, to Jericho after waiting those two days. Lazarus died and had been dead four days by the time that Jesus arrived in Bethany. Jesus timed the resurrection of Lazarus to draw undeniable attention to himself right at the beginning of the Passover week. And then as he traveled to Jerusalem, he rode on a young donkey, deliberately identifying himself with uh, Genesis 49, I think it's 49, 9 through 11, 9 through 12, something like that, uh, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Uh, and he... Also, by riding on this young uh, donkey, he was identifying himself with the long-expected Messiah uh, that was prophesied in Zechariah 9, verse 9. In fact, uh, Matthew's Gospel and uh, John's Gospel identify Jesus 
uh, or identify Zechariah 9 Jesus, as Jesus um, uh, riding on that donkey in fulfillment of that prophecy in Zechariah 9 9. And Zechariah 9 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus. with the air supercharged, very deliberately drew attention to himself to proclaim that he was indeed the king. Listen to all the careful steps that Jesus took to make sure his royal coronation was unmistakable. Look, at, look, look with me at um, verses 29 through 35. When he, Jesus, when Jesus drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the, moment, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untie it, tying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And they were, were untying the colt, or as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. Throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. The world treats uh, Jesus as this one-dimensional Savior who is aloof, Mythical. Uh, they don't see him with his biting sense of humor that we have noticed throughout the Gospel of Luke. They don't see him as this master communicator that is willing to um, use hyperbole to wildly exaggerate his stories to make his point stick um, right down in the solar plexus, right down in their heart. They don't see him as the, as the invited guest um, who was willing to completely destroy a dinner party by calling the host and all the guests uh, social climbers. You remember that from Luke chapter 14? Our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is God the Son. He entered into our world as a helpless baby with the exact purpose of dying on the cross for our sins. He came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. He was in control of every aspect of His life from the moment He entered into our world. Even when He uh, needed His mother to care and feed Him, He was in control. No aspect of his life was spontaneous. Every blind person, every lame uh, person that he healed, was, he was ordained to meet that person and heal them from eternity past. Every instance of opposition that he encountered from the Pharisees and the religious elite was all planned from before the beginning of the world. 
Jesus was utterly in control of his life and his circumstances as he marched relentlessly towards the cross. And so here, we see in verses 29 through 35, he had this plan. And he executed this plan. And the upshot of, this, of the execution of his plan was for everybody that was in and around Jerusalem to see that he was being coronated as the king of Israel. That he indeed was the Messiah who had been promised long ago. And this brings us to one of the the big questions that's always raised in this text. Did Jesus verbally uh, prearrange with the owners of this donkey ahead of time, you know, for, for them to have this donkey ready? Or was Jesus using his supernatural knowledge? Well, it's impossible to know. Um, but I'll speculate nonetheless. Uh, in verse 32, Luke notes that his disciples, when they uh, went up to the donkey, uh, Luke says um, his disciples found it just as he had told them. In other words, I think Luke is stressing the astonishing precision of Jesus' instruction. Jesus said, this is what you'll find. This is what they found. And I think Luke is indicating that Jesus was using his supernatural knowledge. There is this donkey uh, in, Luke, in Matthew's account that's tied up beside its mother that's never been ridden. You'll find it there. The owners will come and ask you, uh, who needs it? Tell them the Lord needs it, and they'll let you go. How does he know? It was prearranged predetermined, preordained from before the creation of the world. And although Jesus was deliberately drawing all this attention to himself, he was not doing it for self-aggrandizement or as a grab after worldly power. The passage from Zechariah 9 that I quoted earlier said, Your king is coming to you righteous, and having salvation is he humble." And mounted on a donkey. Jesus is asserting his kingship. But he's not making a political statement. He's not trying to take control of the government. Jesus' kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. It is awfully tempting, especially in our day and age, to think that his kingdom will not survive if the secular, godless, political direction in our country continues. It's it's tempting to think if we lose our freedoms, the Christian faith will be suppressed and it may even die out. Christian faith may be suppressed. We may lose our freedoms, but Christ's kingdom will not be threatened. It simply means that we we cannot trust in the might of man and we must trust in Christ alone. You know, when I was a younger man, There was this idea that if we could just get enough Christian politicians elected into office that we'd grow the kingdom of Christ. You remember those those movements? But what we found is that politics uh, tends to be downstream from culture. That politics tends to reflect the culture. That politics does not change the culture. 
but only takes the culture in the way that the culture wants to be going. Uh, In other words, we must change the culture if we want to change the political direction. And the only way to change the culture is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. Christ came riding on a donkey, as it says in, uh, in Zechariah 9, having salvation with him. This reminds us, Christ's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom and it spreads through salvation, through his salvation. It spreads by the proclamation of the gospel, not by filling out a ballot. Christ rode into Jerusalem not on a war horse, but on a humble young donkey. And of course, this is a great picture of how our Lord Jesus rides into our life in gentleness and in humility. Remember at the end of uh, Matthew chapter 11, Jesus calls out and he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Christ's kingdom grows as we mirror His humble spirit and proclaim Him as Savior. Powerful prayer, fearless and gentle proclamation of Christ, and humble obedience to Him is the only way that His kingdom will grow. Christ was not a political Savior. Never did He intend to be. As Christ drew near to Jerusalem, the crowds continued to swell. They recognized that Christ was indeed proclaiming his, his kingship. They began singing uh, a messianic psalm, Psalm 118. But in verse 26 of Psalm 118, they changed the words slightly. And in the psalm it says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the crowd changed it, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, Jesus is that exalted king. Jesus is that Messiah that they had been longing for. This was a clear confession that they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Verses 36 through 38. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, and as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. What a commotion. A glorious commotion. Everybody is happy. Everybody is praising the Lord. And it was a mighty crowd. I don't know if you've seen on uh, social media the last few days these uh, throngs of people going out in different nations to uh, protest the, the, the um, shutting down of their country. And the people, uh, the, the pictures... And when up close in the videos, they're all having a great time. They're, they're 
eager to be finished with all the restrictions. And so um, I think this is a, a little bit of a picture of what was happening uh, on the way as Jesus was making his way towards Jerusalem on the back of that donkey. Everybody is happy. They're praising the Lord Jesus as the king who has finally come. And all this, of course, was way too much for the Pharisees who had come to uh, observe all the commotion. So we read in verses 39 and 40, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, would the stones and rocks suddenly develop vocal cords and lips? Or is Jesus using his famous hyperbole? I don't know. Uh, if the Lord could cause uh, Balaam's donkey to, to rebuke Balaam, the stones can cry out. But the important thing uh, to see here is that Jesus is telling the Pharisees that he deserves the worship from all of creation. Not just from human beings. If they were silent, the stones would cry out because he is so worthy of, their, of worship and praise that the, the creation would cry aloud. He deserves the praise of the rocks and stones, even the whole mountainside of, um, of Olivet would cry out in praise and declare uh, that he is worthy, that he is the king, that he is the Messiah. Jesus is declaring his divinity in this statement. He didn't respond to the Pharisees saying, you know, you're right, the people really shouldn't worship me. No, he received their worship. He deliberately set the stage for the crowds to acknowledge him as king. And they did that. But as we move down toward the bottom of this passage, verses 41 through 44, as everyone around him is worshiping and uh, calling, um, praising the Lord Jesus Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. What do we find our Lord doing in the midst of all this celebration? He's weeping, lamenting loudly. And the reason he is weeping is because of the future judgment that's going to come upon Jerusalem. Verses 41 through 44, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, and you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. These Pharisees, Jesus, tell them to stop. All the wicked rulers, the religious elite that have been opposing Him, our Lord Jesus, instead of being angry, is weeping over their wickedness, over their rebellion and their obstinacy. 
He's also weeping over the crowds who are proclaiming him as the king because it wasn't a real faith. They were caught up in the emotion. And Jesus knows that they are going to, in about six days, cry out, crucify him, crucify him, because they really did not want him to be their Savior and their Lord. It is so easy to respond with disgust towards the world and the culture that we live in. You know, the, I mentioned in Sunday school, it's like the, the, the ground underneath our feet is shifting day by day. Um, we're less free as a people. We're less compassionate as a, a, a culture. We're less godly as a nation. It's easy to look on contempt with those who are pushing forward this uh, godlessness and this secularism. And our Lord Jesus, instead of being contemptuous, He wept over them. I think His tears are a challenge to um, our passivity as Christians. We get upset that our nation and our culture is changing. We get upset that we're losing our freedoms. But are we weeping over our culture? Are we weeping over our neighbors who are spiritually dead and will face the judgment unless they turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus prophetically saw Jerusalem as an unrepentant city. And this didn't happen at the end of the world. This happened, it began in 67 A.D., So about, what, 33, 34 years after Jesus died and rose from the grave, um, the Roman authorities laid siege to Jerusalem because uh, the people in Jerusalem were, were rebelling against them. Instead of building siege works to try and breach the city, uh, the uh, Titus, General Titus built a siege work around the city so that no one could get out. Because they were, the Romans were so intent on destroying everything in the city. You read the historian Josephus, and it's, it's gut-wrenching what the Romans did to the city. It's gut-wrenching what the Jews did to each other within the city. We'll see this when we get to uh, uh, Luke 21. It's it horrifying and uh the uh, Caesar uh, commanded that the, the city be wiped down completely. I think they left only three towers standing so that people could actually see that there used to be a city here. And they plowed the rest of it under. And Jesus is weeping because the people of Jerusalem obstinate, hard-hearted, unrepentant their city 
is going to be wet with blood because of the judgment that's coming upon them. And everybody, everyone who does not turn to the Lord Jesus, that instance of judgment upon Jerusalem points forward to the great judgment for everyone who will not turn to the Lord Jesus. Don't show, don't nurture contempt in your heart for our nation. It's easy to do. I do it myself. Be compassionate because they need the Lord Jesus. Weep along with our Savior. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, in your triumphal entry, we are reminded that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that you are the Lord of truth, no matter what we are being told by the experts, the elites, the professionals. Lord, your word is true. God, I ask that you help us to be a people who, under Christ's kingship, follow him in weeping uh, for our nation that is falling off the cliff in their um, efforts to run away from you. Lord, spur us on to an initiative that calls us to invite our neighbor to come to church. Spur us on with a, a loving initiative that causes us to open our mouths and proclaim Jesus Christ to those who are lost and who need him so badly. Lord, be with us. Nurture our love for the lost. Nurture our love for, the, for our enemies, even as we gather around your table and remember how much we, you loved us even while we were dead in our sins. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.